Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Imagine this, you wake up on Sunday morning, you grab breakfast, you take a shower, you search around your closet for 30 or 40 minutes to figure out what you're going to wear to church. You get dressed, you put yourself together. If you have a family, you might load everyone up in the car and head out uh, to church. And as you get to church, you make some small talk with people on the way in. Maybe you grab a cup of coffee, head into equipping hour. After equipping hour, you're standing in the lobby and you, you hear the music start up and so you start to make your way to your seat and as the service starts, you stand when we ask you to stand, you sit when we ask you to sit, um, you sing along as the musicians lead us in a hymn or two or three, you listen as the preacher introduces his sermon with a captivating introduction and you greet a few more people afterwards and load everyone back up in the car and you make your way home. You might turn to your wife or your husband and say to them, wasn't worship great today? You might say something like, oh yeah, it was fantastic. Philip's guitar sounds amazing. The sermon was super interesting and preacher's so dynamic and, no, I'm just kidding. See, it's my thing, so I can make it, I say whatever you want. When you get home, you change into your sweatpants, you grab a sandwich, you take a nap, you have dinner, you get ready for work and school on the next day, and then you walk through the rest of your week like millions and millions of other people until you repeat it all again the following Sunday. That picture that I just painted, is that what Jesus pictured for his children when he says in John 4, verse 23, that he seeks true worshipers who will worship the Father in spirit and truth? Is what I just described what the angel in Revelation 22, verse 9, meant when he commanded the Apostle John, and by extension all of us, to worship God, is what I just described, that, that picture, what Paul envisioned when he says in Ephesians 1, verse 12, that those who hope in Christ would be to the praise of God's glory. Is, it, is, is what he pictured an hour and 45 minutes of shared time with other Christians once a week where they pray and sing three or four songs, listen to a sermon, and then, and then go about their lives like everybody else? Or is it something more significant than that? Is it more important than that? Is it possible that when the Bible speaks about worshiping God and glorifying Christ, it's speaking not simply about a, a weekly meeting, but something far more substantial? Is it possible that when Peter says we are a chosen race, and a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, that he envisioned a devotion to Christ that was far more encompassing than, a, than 120 minutes on Sunday mornings. Is it possible that when, when Paul turns the corner, as we are memorizing in Romans 12, and tells us how to live out our Christian lives in light of the incredible gospel that he has unpacked for 11 chapters, that he is it possible that he imagined more than just a, a tiny subsection of our lives might be set apart to honor him? Is that possible? I believe it's not only possible, but I believe that it is expected. Not only does the word of God expect that our whole being be set apart in worship to God as Christians, it's not only expected, it's demanded. It's demanded from Scripture. God, throughout human history, has always sought after true worshipers. 
Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said that he came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. What's the underlying purpose for this search and recovery effort? John 4, verse 23 says, For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. You see, the Father sent the Son into the world to seek and save out lost sinners like you and like me, who would then become true, meaning genuine, wholehearted worshipers of the living God. What do we mean by worship? What do we mean by worship? Simply defined, worship in the Bible is honor and adoration directed to the one God who is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It, that's what worship is. It is honor and adoration uh, worked out and directed toward the one God, the true and living God, who we know from Scripture is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Throughout human history, God has sought true worshipers. And he does this not because he's somehow insecure or that he's lacking anything. It's not as if he needs us to fill him up. He does this because he is all-sufficient he is most glorious and most praiseworthy, which is what we have been studying and uh, what we did uh, in-depth study in the beginning of our, our look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He has always been outward-moving. God has always been life-giving in himself from all eternity, and then he overflows into the hearts of his children, that we too might share in his eternal life. That's what it means to be born again. For God to affirm anything else as more glorious or grand or worthy of worship than himself would be for God to deny himself. It would be to say something that is not true. And we know that it is impossible for God to deny himself. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. God seeks after true worshipers because he is the one and only eternal God and he is worthy of all our honor and all our praise. He's not seeking worshipers who are kind of, sort of, once in a while interested in looking his direction for a period of time once a week and then the rest of the time giving him no thought whatsoever. No, he's seeking after worshipers whose heart Entirely, whose life entirely is devoted to glorifying him. That means our minds, our wills, our emotions, our affections are all directed and devoted to God. Those are the kind of worshipers that ought to make up the body of Christ. Now we began last Sunday by looking at Matthew 16 and verse 18 in which Jesus promised that he would build his church and that the gates of Hades would not overpower. And we noted by way of introduction that Christ, uh, the church that Christ is building is unassailable in the end by any physical force that the world brings against it. The church that Christ is building is unshakable by any spiritual force that the world brings against it. And while we said everything in the universe is in the state of decay and breaking down, crumbling toward its eventual destruction, the church of the living God is the one reality in the universe that marches forward triumphantly toward glory. And so we ask the question, how can we, how can we become that church? How do we do that? 
And the answer to that question, we said, is found in Scripture. We don't need to go, you know, climb a mountain somewhere. If there's no secret knowledge hidden anywhere. The Word of God tells how Cascades Bible Church can become the kind of church that stands in the face of anything and everything that the world would throw at it and still remain steadfast. So we began, we noted last Sunday, that the first commitment that we must make individually and collectively, and this is our commitment, always has been, is if we are to experience the fullness of Christ's promise to prevail against the pit of hell itself, we said we need to be committed to expository preaching and dynamic teaching. Expository preaching and dynamic teaching. And if you want more information about that or you don't remember what we said, you you can always pick up the recording on the website. We're going to look at a second commitment that the church must be um, uh, committed to, and that is the lifestyle of worship. A lifestyle of worship. God is seeking after true worshipers whose whole heart and whole life are devoted entirely to glorifying him. And we really again, have a simple three-part outline this morning to guide us through this, this thought, this commitment. Uh, the first reason that we must be committed to a lifestyle of worship is first because God created us as human beings to worship. God created us as human beings to worship. Uh, we need to ask ourselves before we get any further than that, what does the Word of God What terms does the Word of God use to speak about worship? How can that then inform our hearts to pursue a lifestyle of worship? That is to be our characteristic as as individuals and as a church. What terms does the Scripture use to speak about worship? There's a few that I just want to point out to you. In the Old Testament, there's two, and there's in the New Testament, there's two. There's, There's others, but kind of the two main ones. In the Old Testament, there's a term... One term that conveys the idea of bowing down, bowing down. You see that, um, and we're going to be flipping around a little bit, in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 2. In Genesis 18 verse 2 it says, Abram, when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them... He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Moses did. This is a a pre-incarnate visit by God to the angel of the Lord. and, And now he recognizes he's standing in the Lord's presence. And it says he bowed himself to the earth. Later on in Genesis 24, in verse 26... When uh, Isaac's servant comes and he finds the person he was looking for, for Isaac, the potential kind of spouse for Isaac, and he realizes that he came upon Abram's family, it says the man bowed low and worshipped God. The same idea of to prostrate oneself, to pay homage before another. has the idea of lowliness and submission. Genesis 30. Four and verse 4, excuse me, verse 8. Now I got the wrong reference there, I'm not sure. But the idea is homage, paying homage, prostrating oneself before another. There's another Old Testament term 
We, the term is, uh, maybe you've heard of it, is evid. Evid. It conveys the idea of service, performing acts of service to God, to, to work for God. Uh, we see this again in Exodus. If you look over at Exodus chapter uh, 23, in verses 24 and 28. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 24. He says, you shall, worship their God. you shall not worship their gods, meaning foreign gods, nor serve them. This is the idea. It's kind of an idea of worship. Nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. Again, in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, God says, you shall not worship false gods or serve them. This has the idea of a component of worship. So, this, so there's, the picture in the Old Testament is one of submission and lowliness, prostration, and then also the idea of service. In the New Testament, there are two terms as well. There's a term in the New Testament, proskuneo, has the idea of making obeisance or to show reverence to God. It's the term we just referenced in John 4 in verse 20, where it says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. That's where this term comes out. It, it means to, to show reverence toward God. You, you say it's here, they say it's there. John chapter 20, 12, verse 20. And again, it says there were some Greeks among them who were going up to worship at the feast. as the idea of uh, bowing low. The, the core of this word has the idea of to kiss. It means to make obeisance to some god or gods, to God or to God, some god, false god. There's another term in the New Testament that picks up a second term, the idea of divine service, divine service to God. Matthew 4 and verse 10. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I'm in chapter 5. Chapter 4, verse 10. <laughs> For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It has the idea of service. Acts 7, verse 7, same thing. It has the, has the idea of obedience and ministry. My point in kind of doing a quick word study is to, the Bible captures this idea of submission and lowliness when it comes to worship, and it also encapsulates rendering service to God. It's both. It's both of those. So worship is an attitude of the heart that brings about certain external actions. In other words, this is how God has created us by nature. He's created us to worship. In the beginning, God spoke humanity into existence as the capstone of his creative work. And we see that in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. At least let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. He created mankind with the image of God sort of embossed on him. We're not God. We're not little gods. We are created in the image of God. There is, a, there is an overlap in what's true about God to some degree in us. God gave man dominion over the earth to subdue it. And he called it all very good. In other words, it was without sin. And 
And God planted man and put him in the garden. And in the garden, there was perfect fellowship, perfect um, worship. Not only did God dwell there amongst his men, amongst Adam and Eve, but he says he walked among them in the cool of the day. In other words, humanity had perfect communion with God. They obeyed him with unquestioned loyalty, but they also worship and honor God with unqualified obedience. It was pure worship every moment of every day, every thought in perfect submission to God, with perfect reverence and awe of God, resulting in perfect compliance with his revealed will. But all of that, we know all of that changed in Genesis 3. When sin entered the created order, now Adam and Eve chose to obey Satan's lie over God's Commandment, chapter 3, verse 7 says, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew. They knew what? They knew that they were naked. They knew that they had turned their back on God. They knew for the very first time the guilt and the shame of sin. And so with the entrance of, of sin, both man and the creation were cursed. And the pure worship of God was corrupted and it was distorted. Now there's no longer unquestioned loyalty. Now there's no longer unqualified obedience. And in its place is rebellion, confusion, and death. Physical death, spiritual death. All the wickedness and evil we see in the world flows from a worship disorder. And that worship disorder is ultimately terminal. It is terminal. If you look at Romans 1... In uh, verses 21 to 23, Paul says, he says that man has exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. He says we, 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 we've, we've seen his invisible attributes, verse 20, and his eternal power, and we and even though we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks. We came futile in our speculations. Verse 25 says, We exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and now we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Verse 28, And they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not Proper. In other words, all wickedness and evil flows from a worship disorder, and that worship disorder is spiritually and physically terminal. This is the struggle we have every day. Every one of you, me, we struggle to worship God through his Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit every single day, all the time. The white-hot glory of God in Christ has been bent and it has been distorted in our hearts by sin, the lens of sin, such that we fail to reflect back to God the pure worship that he so rightly deserves. And instead we give our worship to a million other things, a million other things, money and work and influence and possessions and add anything you want to that list that isn't God. But he 
didn't abandon us in our terminal worship disorder. The aim of redemptive history from the fall onward has always been God's search and rescue effort to restore mankind to the pure worship of himself. It's why he created us. God is seeking after true worshipers whose whole heart and his whole life are devoted to glorifying him. So important. Man was created in the beginning to worship And sin has distorted and distracted us from the pure worship. This leads right into the second point. We are created to worship, but secondly, God, because of sin, has now redeemed us to worship. Christ's church is committed to a lifestyle of worship because God not only created us to worship, but he has now redeemed us to worship. The way God is set about to seek after true worshipers is by redeeming them. To redeem something is to buy it back. It is to pay a price to recuperate something that is lost. God has always sought to restore the pure worship of himself through redeeming hopeless sinners from their slavery and their bondage. Now, we see that in an Old Testament context in a kind of prefiguring the the greater redemption that is in Jesus Christ. But we see this in a dramatic way in the book of Exodus. The whole book of Exodus is about redemption. And God redeems his chosen people, Israel, from bondage in Egypt to worship him. To worship him. Remember, every time that Moses went to Pharaoh asking for God to, or Pharaoh to release them, it was so that they could worship God. Chapter Exodus 7 In verse 16, he says, You shall say to Pharaoh, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Of course, Pharaoh didn't answer that. He says it again in chapter 8, verse 1, and chapter 8, verse 20, and again in chapter 9, verse 1. It's the same thing. Let my people go, that they may serve me. It's that term to provide, uh, to render service to God. It has the idea of worship. And every time Moses was the instrument through whom God poured out his plagues on Egypt to attack Egypt's rebellion, and eventually we know he relented. And God's people came out through a magnificent deliverance. God parted the Red Sea. The Egyptians were destroyed. But as you come to Exodus 14... After all that has happened, in verse 31, it says, When Israel saw the great power with which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. God redeemed them from slavery and bondage to Egypt, And the only fitting response of the people was worship. Worship. They feared God in the sense of revered God in their hearts. And that reverence and fear spilled over into praise. Verse 1 of chapter 15. God not only redeemed... that, that, That redemption was magnificent and powerful. And it's referred to again and again and again throughout Israel's history. Looking back... But it, it prefigured the greater redemption that is through Jesus Christ. God not only redeemed the nation of Israel to worship him, but in the present age, we know he is redeeming lost sinners through his son. 
And he's redeeming them into the one new man, the spiritual body, which is the church, to worship him in spirit and in truth. Not just according to a law, but in the heart of that, the spirit of that law. Of course, we reference in John 4, Jesus is talking about the hearts of his people who would worship because they have the Holy Spirit, who would illumine their hearts to redeem them. We look over at Ephesians 1 for just a second. Um, it says here, we were redeemed by God's Son to worship. In verse 7 of chapter 1, it says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption. And that redemption comes to us through his blood, through his cross work, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind attention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven on earth. God the Son has redeemed us. He bought us back and he did it through his blood. He died in the cr on the cross in our place for our sins. He bore the punishment that we deserved and he did that and God raised him from the dead. And the good news is that those who repent, those who believe and place their trust in Jesus as their only hope are given a complete and total pardon. And he says it's all by the grace of God. But we haven't been just given a pardon, but he's also furnished us with an eternal reward. Verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, and verse 12 gives us the final end. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. This is the end result. God redeemed us so that we would worship him. That our lives would redound to the praise of his glorious grace. There are a lot of reasons and things that God gives us and does for us in, in our salvation. It's important to know those things. But the primary reason God saved you and saved me isn't so that we would escape hell. The primary reason he saved us is not that you'd enjoy God's blessings or have a good life. The primary reason God saved you has nothing to do with you receiving anything. The primary reason, the ultimate reason God saved you and saved me is so that he might receive worship that he deserves, that our lives would magnify him and not ourselves. I mean, Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians 3 is this, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I mean, that's it. That's what our lives are all about, that their God's glory in Jesus Christ would be manifest in his church. Third John verse 7 says the missionaries, gospel emissaries, were sent out for the sake of the name. It has to do with God's reputation, God's fame, God's person. He is seeking, God is true worshipers whose whole heart and whose whole life are devoted to magnifying him. And the glorious thing is that that is our greatest joy. That is our greatest good. So they're not, they're not competing things. 
This leads into a third point. This, the church, Christ's church, must be committed to a lifestyle of worship because God, lifestyle of worship because God created us to worship, God redeemed us to worship, and lastly, because God commands us to worship. God has redeemed us for his own glory and not our own. But that has placed a demand on us. It's, he's placed a demand upon our lives as, as believers. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20 says, You've been bought with a price. The implication, therefore, glorify God in your bodies. In other words, the way you live is a consequence of God's redeeming you. You are to glorify him in all things. 1 Peter 1, verse 15, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. Our lives, as followers of Christ, they don't belong to us. We forget that sometimes. We think that, you know, everything, like, I can do whatever I want. But no, you can't. Your life belongs to Christ if you belong to him. Our lives are to be set apart entirely to glorify and worship God. And the way we worship God is of utmost importance. Like we said earlier, worshiping isn't the problem. We're all worshiping something. <laughs> the question is, are, is our worship acceptable to God? That's what's most important. We all bow down and serve something. Every human being. Whether they acknowledge that or know it or understand it or not. We all worship, but the question is, is our worship acceptable to God? There is worship that is not acceptable to God. So we need to think about proper worship. God commands us to worship. So what does acceptable worship look like? Well, it, we can look at it along three axes, if you will. Three axes. First, we'll call this the sort of outward axis. Acceptable worship expresses itself in how we behave toward others. So it has an outward trajectory. Our worship is an acceptable worship to God is manifest in how we behave toward others. When Paul, uh, when Paul warns his fellow believers in Rome to be sensitive to the consciences of his fellow believers who are struggling in the midst of whatever it is that they were struggling with, he says in Romans 14, verse 18, that they are to give space for the otherness of others. He says, who is, he says for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. That's the key. In other words, how we treat others... How we, how we work our, out our faith in the context, context of other people, that is service to God. That is worship to God. How we treat other believers is part of our acceptable worship. Uh, it's not only just our conduct, but our gospel witness. Sharing the gospel is an expression of acceptable worship. Romans 15 and verse 16, Paul says he was commissioned by the grace of God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering, he says, as a priest, the gospel of God. 
And this is why. So that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul viewed his gospel proclamation as service, worship to God, and he wanted that worship to be acceptable. In other words, he preached the true gospel. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He held other people to that standard. He says, I want that offering to become acceptable. I want it to be set apart by the Holy Spirit, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So it has to do with our conduct toward others. In Philippians 4, verse 18, Paul speaks about their generous gift for his needs. He says, I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphrodite, which you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So here he's talking about those who give as an acceptable act of worship. He says that is an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So there's an outward dimension, there's an outward axis, as it will, to our worship. And that can be summed up in one word, giving. Giving. Love for God that overflows in giving to meet the needs of others. This is, this is how we think about one axis of our worship that's acceptable to God. So the question is, in what ways are you worshiping God by giving your life away for others? I mean, that's the question I'm asking myself. As I study through this and think through this text or these texts, you know, how, how am I sharing Christ? How am I serving the body of Christ? How am I investing in that which is eternal for others, for the benefit of others? So important to think through. It's part of our worship. There's a second axis that we can think about our worship that's acceptable to God, and that is our, our personal conduct, our personal conduct. So we have an outward axis and an inward axis. Our personal conduct. Ephesians 5, Paul says that, in verses 8 to 10, he says that doing good is an acceptable act of worship to God. He says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 10 there, it says this word for pleasing is a synonym for acceptable. Has the idea of is acceptable. To live a life of righteousness, goodness, and truth is to worship God. It is to honor and adore Him. So our personal conduct is key to our worship. We live righteous lives. 1 Timothy 2, 1-3, it says we're to pray for those in authority in order to live a life Quietly in all godliness and dignity, living a life in all godliness and dignity is talking about our personal conduct. And he says that is good. Verse 3 says that is good and acceptable in the sight of God. In other words, our personal conduct is, is important for our, to live a life of worship. 
You and I worship God when our lives are characterized by inward obedience. This is how we worship God. So you have to ask yourself, in what ways is my personal life and conduct glorify and honor God? How is it doing that? How is that working itself out? I mean, in a few moments, we're going to partake of the Lord's table where we're going to approach that table as believers, hopefully with a clear conscience. Are there patterns of sin that you're holding on to that you need to repent of so that your life might be, accept, worship of Christ might be acceptable in this area or that area? We don't get to compartmentalize our Christian lives. We can't do that. Living for Christ in the home, living like a pagan in the workplace, that doesn't work. Living like everybody else at home and living like a Christian in front of other Christians, that doesn't work. We have to be the same person in every context. Our inward conduct, our outward actions. There's a third axis. We have an outward axis, an inward axis. The third is, we'll call this an upward axis. An upward axis. And it's summed up in Hebrews chapter uh, 13. Hebrews 13 and verse 15. In 16, well, really verse 15, he says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So worship in an upward axis is quite simply praise and thanksgiving directed to God. It is, it is, this is what we often think about as worship. Maybe it's singing or maybe it's prayer it's uh, giving thanks in our hearts in different situations. This is part of that worship. It's not the totality of our worship, but it is an essential part of our worship. So, so there's an upward axis to our worship in our praise and our thanksgiving. This is, we are continually to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That's the language of worship. In verse 16 the end of verse 15 and verse 16, bring all three of those axes together in this nice little package. He says, it's the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, and we do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So praising God, thanking God, that's an upward axis. Sharing with others, that's an, uh, that's an outward axis. And doing good which is kind of a catch-all phrase, is our inward conduct. That pretty much is everything. That's all worship right there. It's praise. It's how we treat and share, other, share and give our lives for others. It's in how we conduct ourselves doing good. Our lives are to be an expression of worship. That's what Romans 12 is all about. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Everything about our lives, how we treat others, how we live ourselves, how we live in relationship to God, all of it is an expression of worship. That is our lives. That is our spiritual service of worship. And we can do that because we have been born again. We have the Spirit of God within us. We, we know him. We know his word. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. 
And so we present our bodies, our entire lives are to be an expression of worship. His word commands it. His word commands it. God is seeking after true worshipers whose whole heart and whole lives are devoted to glorifying him. This is not radical Christianity. This is normal Christianity. It's normal Christianity. God created us to worship. God has redeemed us as his people to worship. God commands us to worship. And all those things are for our good. They're, they're not, it's not like, oh man, I got to do this. No, we get to do this. And when we're not doing this, we are shortchanging ourselves and stealing glory from Christ. When Jesus looked out at a lost and dying sinners and he preached and he said, follow me. When Jesus said, follow me, take up your cross and follow me, he was calling them just like he's calling us to surrender our lives as we knew them to worship him, to give glory to him. And if worshiping God with every fiber of your being doesn't sound like the kind of thing you want to do, we have to ask ourselves, do we understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Because that's what he demands. We have to test ourselves. Is this what we want? And I pray you pass the test. But if Christ is in you, and I believe for many of you that's the case, I would echo the command given by the angel to John in Revelation 22. He says, worship God. Worship God. Worship God with everything in your being. Worship God in his church. Worship God with your family. Worship God in your service to others. Worship God through your generosity. Worship God in the workplace. Worship God in your schoolwork. Worship God in your marriage. Worship God in your singleness. Worship God in your trials. Worship God in your blessings. Christ's church is committed. It has to be committed to a lifestyle of worship. It's not something we put on for an hour and a half or two hours or three hours on Sunday. It's our whole lives. And I pray that God would give us the grace to do that for the fame of his name. That's why we've gone out, so to speak. It is for the fame of his name, not ourselves. This is a core commitment of Christ's church. If we're not committed to worshiping him with everything in our lives, we cannot be the kind of church that will prevail against this world. And thankfully, we can't do this perfectly, and yet Christ still has loved us and showered his grace on us. It is because he's redeemed us that we are freed up to be able to do this. We are no longer in his debt in the sense of trying to fill him up, but in the sense that we have been made full, and out of our fullness, his fullness, we live for him. So important. It's church, it's church 101. <laughs> We live to worship God in Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. You set the trajectory of our lives from the very beginning in the garden 
that we would worship you, that we would have fellowship with you, communion, perfect communion and fellowship with you. We, we see how sin has robbed us of, of that um, privilege and how we have given our glory to so many other things. And yet, and yet, in your mercy and your grace, you broke through our, the darkness and draw, you have drawn us to yourself. You sought to make us true worshipers once again, that we would live for you. And we, we confess we don't do it as we ought. Our minds, our hearts are caught up in so many other things. Guard our hearts, Lord. Forgive us, cleanse us, set us back in the right trajectory. We long for that day when things will be made right. And we will have that fellowship that, we, that Adam and, and Eve had in the very beginning. And we'll have it with all the saints in glory. We look forward to that day, Lord. Give us grace to persevere until that time. In Jesus' name, amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.